Today, I want to use the sermon time to talk basically to young people. Young people, those under age 30. I want to encourage all you young people to use your youthful energy and idealism to learn the way of peace, to build godly character, and to have true success and happiness both now and forever. I plan to give you an overview of some godly principles, and I want to talk specifically to the toddlers to age 12, and then I'm going to talk to those age 13 to age 30, and expound Micah chapter 6, verse 8. And then finally, if we have enough time, talk about some tips for success and happiness. But first, let's turn to Genesis 1, Genesis 1, verse 24. Genesis 1, verse 24. Mr. Armstrong many times would like to go back to Genesis to start his sermons. In Genesis 1, and verse 24, we find God said, Let the earth bring forth the living creature according to its kind, cattle, and creeping things, and beasts of the earth, each according to its kind, and it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to its kind, cattle according to its kind, everything that creeps on the earth according to its kind, and God saw it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So we see that God made you and me in his image. God is creating a family. The world considers the doctrine that God is reproducing himself as heretical. And yet the Bible supports that understanding. We can give whole sermons about that. We see here that God created, everything that God created was very good. God created all things through Jesus Christ. And he wants to give us dominion, power, over the entire universe. We need to learn about that magnificent creation that God made, that Jesus Christ spoke and it was made. We can start at the atomic level. I'm always fascinated with only four basic laws of gravity, electromagnetism, strong nuclear force, weak nuclear force. All that we see around us exists. It was created. It is sustained. It works every time. The proportions of power of how these laws interact are specifically designed so that human beings can live in this universe. We go to the molecular level. Evidence of intelligent design is everywhere around us. You look at molecules that, that have or, uh, little molecular machines, little flagella that work. They have irreducible complexity. And when one explains irreducible complexity, one likes to talk about a mousetrap. You need all the elements in the mousetrap for it to work. You have to have a strong base. You have to have a spring. You have to have a, a metal piece. You have to have a trip. What if your base is a piece of paper? Well, it won't kill the mouse, will it? No, because the paper all crumples. What if instead of a nice metal piece, you have a, a, a wet noodle? That won't work either. <laughs> what if instead of a spring, you know, you just go through it. It has to be just balanced so it works every time. That's how God explained, that's how God built things. 
He made them so they work every time. How about your, your clotting system? You get a cut. I, I don't recommend that you do this, but we all get cuts from time to time, right? The body has to recognize, that, well, there's an opening here in the skin, and it has to bring a certain amount of clotting material, which forms in certain patterns, and that it closes the cut, and then it has to stop bringing the clotting material, because if it doesn't, guess what? The clot goes up your arm, reaches your heart, your brain, and you're dead. So it has to work right the first time, every time. There's many layers, many steps involved in the blood clotting mechanism. And you know what? God created that intelligent design. There's so much we can learn at the molecular level. How about DNA? God, in four chemical bases, put all these things together and transmit this information so that life reproduces faithfully again and again. At the plant level, all the variety of plants that God made, beautiful plants, different purposes, different functions for these plants. How about at the animals? You know, God made some animals for locomotion, like horses and mules. He made some animals that we can eat, others that we're not supposed to eat. They're scavengers. They sort of clean up the place. I think other animals are just for fun. You've seen how some monkeys run around, you know, some birds and how they do their thing, you know, ostriches. And, you know, you think, well, God has a sense of humor. Sure he does. He made all these things. And then you look at the stars at night and how the grandeur of God, how it works at the galactic level. We worship and are in awe of a great God. Well, Christ created all things. God the Father created all things through Jesus Christ. Christ came preaching the good news of the kingdom of God. What is the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God is the family of God administering the government of God over the creation of God. That includes angels, galaxies, all that is. Again, the family of God administering the government of God based on the law of God, of love, over the whole creation of God. How can you, young people, be a part of that family and live happily ever after? We, all of us, you, your parents, you young people, all of us need to come to understand God's mercy and grace. We need to learn and grow in godly character. And what is godly character? But to know the right, to choose the right, and to do the right. That is the purpose of human life, to come to know God, to know the right, to choose the right, and voluntarily do the right in spite of resistance and temptations. God could have created robots. He could have programmed us to just do what we're told when we're told to do it without asking any questions, but he didn't. He's making children. Well, let me talk to toddlers now. Toddlers to, let's say, age 12. Could all of you stand up in your congregations around the world? All the toddlers, wave your hand. Let me see you. Let me see you. Okay, I see some here, there. All of you around the world, look around. See the little ones. Look at them. Okay, great. Have a seat. Thank you. I'm going to talk to you right now. Okay? I want, I'm going to express three basic things. First, I want you to know that you should come to God in faith. Come to God in faith because God has a special concern and care for you children, you toddlers, you little ones. Let's go to Mark 10 and verse 
13. Mark 10, verse 13. We read this during the blessing of the little children ceremony, during the Feast of Tabernacles. In Mark 10, verse 13, then they brought little children to him, little toddlers. Then he might touch them, but the disciples rebuked those who brought them. But when Jesus saw it, he was greatly displeased. He said to them, let the little children come to me and do not forbid them. For of such is the kingdom of God. Assuredly, I say to you, whosoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. And he took them up in his arms and laid his hands on them and blessed them. You little children, God wants you to come to him. God wants all of you little ones to come to him in faith and humility. All of us older people, parents, older people, we need to look at these little ones, at their enthusiasm, at their trust, at their joy and excitement at receiving gifts. For us, the kingdom of God is the gift that Daddy is giving us, the toy that will never fade, the joy that will never pale. Again, you little ones. Did you know that God heals little children? Yes, he does. He wants you to come to him when you're sick. Because God is merciful to heal. Let's go to Mark chapter 5. Mark chapter 5 and verse 22. Mark chapter 5 and verse 22. We see here the story of a ruler of the synagogue, Jairus by name. Behold, one of the rulers of the synagogue came, Jairus by name, and when he saw him, he fell at his feet and begged him earnestly, saying, My little daughter lies at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her, that she may be healed, and she will live. So Jesus went with him. And a few things happened, as happens many times with parents. They, they're starting to go a certain way, and they get distracted. But we come back around to verse 35. While he was still speaking to this other person, some came from the ruler of the synagogue's house and said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? As soon as Jesus heard the word that was spoken, he said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not be afraid. Only believe. And he permitted no one to follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. And he came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and he saw a tumult and those who wept and wailed loudly. And when he came and he said to them, Why are you making this commotion and weep? The child is not dead, but sleeping. They ridiculed him. But when he put them all outside, he took the father and the mother of the child and those who were with him and entered where the child was lying. And he took the child by the hand and said, Talita kumi, which is translated, little girl, I say to you, arise. Immediately the girl arose and walked, for she was 12 years of age. They were overcome with great amazement. But Christ, being practical, commanded them that they should give her something to eat because young people are very hungry and they need that energy. So Christ was practical. and said, well, don't tell anybody about it, but of course they did. So children, you little children, you're sick. Did you know your parents hurt with you? Sometimes your parents, they feel helpless to comfort you. But we can always go to God. You can always go to God, who knows what's wrong and how to make it right. Children, ask your parents about God and His ways. Along with other areas of life, ask them. When you are sick, ask your parents to pray for you. 
And if it's a very serious sickness, ask to be anointed by an elder of the church or, or ask him to get an anointed cloth for you. Because God is merciful. He loves you, you little children. No good thing is too difficult for our God. Pray to the God who loves little children, who heals you when you're sick. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 6. The third point, little children, the third point is that you need at your age to start learning to do God's ways. And one of the key things that you need to learn, little children, is in Ephesians 6 and verse 1. It says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and your mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, that it may be well with you, and you may live long on the earth. So parent, uh, children, obey your parents in the Lord. Honor your parents. This is one of God's commandments. And you little children around the world, do you know the Ten Commandments? Can you name all the Ten Commandments, even the short form? I challenge you to learn. I challenge you to learn. When we were in Clearwater, we gave this challenge to the young people, and um, we had a little system down there that uh, if they could learn all ten then they could get a certificate. I'm holding, holding up the certificate here. If they could name just one or two, they got one chocolate kiss, one candy kiss, if their parents permitted, for each commandment that they could recite. Because God's ways are sweet. His words are sweet. And if they could recite all ten, they got ten candy kisses and they got their certificate. Well, of course, that excited many children. And we had some who could only come up with one or two but you know, the parents worked with the children to teach them. And the children were excited because they wanted to have this nice certificate and, of course, the candy. And we had two days where you know, they could come to an elder of the church because that's what they were supposed to do. And the idea was that so the children would, would learn and interact with the elders. Because sometimes people look at the elders, especially little children, and think, well, the elders are like, well, oh, they're, they're big guys, you know. And, you know, they're sort of way off, and we wanted to bring them together. So the children came, and, of course, my father-in-law, who is an elder, you know, uh, he was over there sort of giving little hints. I told him, no. <laughs> they're supposed to learn these things. <laughs> so they were interacting, and they were encouraging each other, and they were happy. And then, then afterwards, you know, if the ones who got all ten... You know, they took uh, the certificate over, and we had some ladies who had calligraphy, and they could you know, write in very nicely the names and the dates and so forth for the kids. And, and the kids would run around, they'd show their certificate to people. Of course, eating the candy. It seemed to work very well. So you children, I urge you, I exhort you, learn the Ten Commandments, even if it's just a short form, because you'll profit by it. Going on in Ephesians 6, verse 4, it says, And you fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training, the nurture, the admonition of the Lord. Yes, I want to speak to parents a little bit. So many times we reflexively say no. I'm a father of four. And so many times when they were younger, they'd come say, Daddy, I want to do this. No. Didn't even hear them. Didn't even think. No. Do we do that? Get a habit? No. And we, they want to say, no. Well, Daddy, no. Is it a reflex? No. Well, yes. <laughs> we need to find ways to say yes. 
fathers. We need to balance discipline and love with our children, but learn not to provoke or press or dictate to our kids. Children need guidance and the habit of obedience when they're young because they don't have enough experience in life. They don't know that they shouldn't put their hand on the hot stove or play on the freeway. But as they grow, what happens? They get, they get annoying because they ask, why? Why, Daddy? Well, because this. Well, why that? And you have this interminable questions of why, why, why? Why did God create children that way? Because he wants us to teach them and give them understanding. This habit of blind obedience is only good, perhaps, for little children. It's not good for children 6, 7, 8, 9, 10. As they grow, we must give them understanding. We must teach them understanding. We must even allow them to make mistakes so that they will learn. Because if they do not make mistakes, if they do not make choices, if we tell them everything to do, it frustrates them, and they don't learn character. Because character requires choice. Now, some mistakes I don't want my children to make. I never want my children to even try drugs once. I don't want them to do a mistake that will hurt them, scar them forever. But if my kids, and they have, want to stay up and watch TV, not do their homework, okay, you go to school the next day and you have no homework to turn in. You made a mistake. Pay the penalty. Ooh. You know, they haven't made that mistake too often, but I will allow them to make that if they want to. Of course, now they're graduating from high school, so they're in college, but I guess... Anyway, we, we, we all have to give our children the freedom to make some mistakes, to choose. They need to make informed choices. We need to encourage them, educate them, so they understand. So parents, we must have wisdom in teaching our children. And I put the main responsibility on us fathers. Another thing, parents, I want to speak to you a little bit about little children. Hug your children. Kind and appropriate physical contact is particularly important for infants, but it's also reassuring as children get older. For several years, I was a director for children's issues at the State Department, and that's an office that covers international adoptions and abductions. And on the adoptions part, we learned something interesting. We learned, especially, well, Romania was at that time a large, uh, a country which gave a large number of children for adoption to the United States, and Korea as well. And both are fairly poor countries. In both cases, the children received good physical care. In Romania, you'd have these nice cribs, and people were given, you know, the children were given food and changed regularly and so forth and so on. Uh, same thing happened in Korea. The problem was, in Romania, there was a much higher death rate among the orphans. Why? The only difference that we could find, that the experts could find, was that the Romanian nurses would change the children, would feed them, but they laid in the bed. The Korean nurses would pick the children up and hold them, maybe sing to them, touch them and then put them down. We found that physical contact was very important. It was a life or death issue for these children. 
I think it's fascinating that God has one of his basic doctrines of Hebrews 6, the laying on of hands. Physical contact is perhaps important in a way that we don't quite understand, but that God knows. So parents, I encourage you, hug your children. Now, French people, and Latins in general, they like to hug and to kiss on the cheek as a greeting. I was talking with Nora Kennel down in, uh, who lives in Miami, and we both agreed that even Anglo-Saxons can learn to do this with some effort. Um, but uh, if you'll turn to Titus, Titus chapter 3 and verse 15, interesting word here. It says, all who are with me, Paul says, greet you or salute you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Now, this word greet, and I have the New King James, it's greet both times. In the Old King James, it says greet one time and salute the other, but it's the same Greek word. It's uh, as pazomei, and it means enfold in arms, embrace. I find that fascinating. In the Church of God, we, it says all who are with me enfold you in their arms, embrace you. Embrace those who love us in the faith. So in the church, is it appropriate for us to hug each other? Well, yeah, it's biblical. Now, I do have to say that the protocol, and I speak especially to young men, <clears throat> a protocol is that if the lady is not comfortable with you hugging her, she should hold out her hand and you should shake the hand. You don't force yourself upon the lady. But in summary, appropriate physical contact, especially parents with their children in families, and appropriate contact in the church, helps people grow, gives them assurance, comfort, helps them to thrive. Okay, now those who are aged 13 to 30, ages 13 to 30, please stand. Local congregations, people who are ages 13 to 30, please stand. Wow. Hi, Rebecca, how are you doing? Wow, we have a fair number here. All of you looking around the world, look around and see these young people, ages 13 to 30. It's a large group. Thank you. Thank you. Have a seat, please. I speak to you now. Your generation will have an increasing role and responsibility to finish this phase of the work. We know that we might have five years, ten years, maybe fifteen years. We don't know. We can't set any dates. We don't know how long we have. But you who stood will be entering more and more the peak of your physical, mental, financial strength. It will fall to you to carry on if we have 5, 10, 15 years to carry on this work and to finish it. What does God expect of you? What does God expect of us? We must learn now the way of peace because in the millennium we'll be teaching that way of peace. Do we know the way of peace now? Now, peace is not just the absence of conflict. That's, I know, what the main meaning in English, we think, well, peace, that means we're not fighting. But really, the Hebrew word shalom has much more to it than just absence of conflict. It includes friendliness, includes good health, includes kindness, as well as peace, good health, all these things. We remember the verse that says, you know, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Well, if peace is only the absence of conflict, how could there be an increase in the absence of conflict? Of course, it means more than that. Friendliness, good health, joy, prosperity. 
And God's kingdom, shalom, will grow and grow and grow. We need to learn the way of peace now. Let's go to Micah chapter 6 and verse 8. Micah chapter 6 and verse 8. This should be a memory scripture for all of us. Micah chapter 6 verse 8. What does God require of you young people and of us all? Micah 6 verse 8. He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God? It's very simple, and yet it's profound. Jesus Christ affirmed these precepts in Matthew 23, 23. I'll just quickly turn there, leaving my finger in, in Micah 6, 8. But in Matthew 23, 23, Christ essentially said the same thing. Matthew 23 and verse 23. Christ said, Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites, for you pay tithe, the mint and anise and cumin, but have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faith. The weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faith, they correspond quite well to do justly, love mercy, and walk humbly. Walking humbly and having faith in God, very close. Of course, these ought you have done, paying tithes, without leaving the other undone. So Christ affirmed that in the New Testament, what we see in the Old Testament here in Micah chapter 6, verse 8. Do justly, love mercy, walk humbly, walk in faith. Justice, mercy, faith. That's where we need to be. That's where we all need to be. Our religion is not a religion like the Jews. The Jews have 613 rules for being a good Jew. Do this, don't do that. Well, you know, if it was, if it was that simple, God could have programmed that into us. He programmed other things into us, all those little molecular machines. and It's more than that. God gives us principles. We have to learn how to apply them. We have to learn judgment. How to apply this principle in this situation, given this set of facts. Mercy, once we make a, a determination of the facts set, mercy, is mercy required? What's the quality of our mercy toward others? Faith. Judgment, mercy, can God work it out? Will God work it out? If we do what he says to do, even though it doesn't look like it's working out that way? Of course. That's where we need to be. Do justly. Well, what is do justly? What is that? Well, God's law defines justice. God's law of love, the royal law of love, defines what justice is. It defines what fairness is, what equity is. Love, mercy. What's that? We should help the poor and the afflicted. Christ said, go and learn what this means. I will have mercy and not sacrifice. We're to be merciful. And thirdly, walk humbly before God. Don't be arrogant. Don't be a know-it-all. Accept instruction from reliable teachers. You young people, God requires these things of you, requires them of us all. God wants all of us, and you young people as well, to act honorably, to follow a more excellent standard of moral and ethical behavior, even if your parents, your teachers, your peer group do not. You have personal responsibility to make informed choices. You cannot blame your wrong behavior, if you do wrong behavior, 
on your parents, on your minister, or on your teachers. Let's now talk about doing justly. Let's go to Ezekiel 18.4. Ezekiel 18, verse 4. Ezekiel talks a lot about this concept of doing justly. We see in Ezekiel 18, starting at verse 4, God says, Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the Father as well as the soul of the Son is mine. The soul who sins shall die. Personal responsibility. The soul that sins will die. You and I have personal responsibility. You can't blame wrong behavior on somebody else while I'm just doing what I was told. No, you have a responsibility to do what's right. Verse 5, but if a man is just, so he's going to tell us what justice is. If a man is just and does what is lawful and right, if he has not eaten on the mountains, nor lifted up his eyes to the idols of the house of Israel, in other words, if you can't worship God just any way you want, you have to worship God the way he says, the way the Bible reveals to worship him. That's part of justice. Nor defiled his neighbor's wife, and that includes sex before marriage, because if you have sex before marriage, you've defiled a woman who probably one day will be married. That's part of justice. Nor approached a woman during her impurity. If he has not oppressed anyone, but has restored to the debtor's pledge, in other words, you treat people economically in a proper way. If you're a boss, and you young people, probably many of you will be supervisors, how will you treat others when you're in a position of responsibility, when you're the supervisor. You grumble and complain, well, the teachers do this, teachers do that. What happens one day when you're the teacher, when you're the boss? Will you oppress? If he has not oppressed anyone, but is restored to the debtor his pledge, has robbed no one by violence, so you have to treat others with respect and gentleness, not brusquely, but has given his bread to the hungry, cover the naked with clothing. If he has not exacted usury, nor taken any increase. So again, we have to use credit wisely. We ha can't oppress others. We can't exact increase in usury off others. But has withdrawn his hand from iniquity. In other words, lawlessness. Doesn't do just whatever he wants to do. But he's executed true judgment between man and man. He has walked in my statutes and kept my judgments faithfully. He is just. God tells us what justice is. Do justly. Do these things. He is just. He shall surely live, says the Lord. But if he begets a son who's a robber, a shedder of blood who does any of these things and does none of these duties, but he's eaten on the mountains, he's defiled his neighbor's wife, he's oppressed the poor and the needy, he's robbed by violence, not restored the pledge, lifted his eyes to idols, or committed abomination. If he has exacted usury or taken increase, shall he then live? He shall not live. If he's done any of these abominations, he shall surely die. His blood shall be upon him. Personal responsibility. Sometimes you have a good parent, gives a good example, and the child makes the choice to go the wrong way. Sometimes you have a bad parent, child makes a choice to do right. We see this, verse 14, If, however, the bad parent begets a son, who sees all the sins of his father is done, he considers but does not do likewise, who has not eaten on the mountains, he has not lifted up his eyes to the idols of the house of Israel, nor defiled his neighbor's wife, he has not oppressed anyone, nor withheld a pledge, nor robbed by violence, but he has given his bread to the hungry, he has covered the naked with clothing, 
who has withdrawn his hand from the poor, who has not received usury or increase, but has executed my judgments. He has walked in my statutes, which define justice, God's law, God's statutes and judgments. He shall not die for the iniquity of his father. He shall surely live. As for his father, because he cruelly oppressed, robbed his brother by violence, he did was not good among the people. Behold, he shall die for his iniquity. God defines justice in this chapter. You young people, you're in the right place to learn to do justly. To learn the right you're in the right place to learn the right way to live. This is your church. Even if you're not baptized, you're a member of this church. You might be a prospective member, an unbaptized member, but you are part of this church. You are called of God and you're responsible for what you're learning. Now, your parents taught you, maybe some of you younger ones, maybe even forced you to come. You know, your parents are trying. They might, they're not perfect. Parents aren't perfect. You know what? Church of God is not perfect. No church, organization, no organization of human beings. For that matter, no political group, no philosophy of this world, none of them are perfect. I wish the church of God was perfect. I say this because young people are idealistic. And you should be. Reminds me of Winston Churchill. He, uh, I think he said one time that if a young person wasn't uh, idealistic and liberal when he was 20, he didn't have a heart. But if he wasn't a conservative, by the time he was 50, he had no brain. <laughs> well, I'm over 50 and I'm conservative. Any event, idealism befits young people. Yet, when you see the mistakes of your elders, you see the mistakes of political parties, or even mistakes in the church of God, you can perhaps be tempted to be cynical. I plead with you. Don't become cynical just because you see mistakes. I know you're idealistic. But please do not become cynical. Don't surrender to cynicism if you see mistakes or imperfections. You have a personal responsibility to fulfill your role, to do your part, no matter what someone else does. Remember, we're talking about learning to do justly. And God's law defines what is just, right and wrong, what is sin or is not sin. We need to remember these things. Let's go to Malachi 4 now. Malachi 4. Very important concept here. Malachi 4, we'll start in verse 4. It says here, Remember the law of Moses, my servant, which I commanded him in Horeb for all of Israel with the statutes and judgments. God's law defines what justice is, and God requires that we do justly. Verse 5, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. Or it can be translated, Utter destruction. We see here that near the time of the end, and we are near the time of the end, God says he would send Elijah the prophet. Now, I know there's discussion about who was Elijah or who wasn't Elijah. I won't go into that. I'll just say that John the Baptist was a type of Elijah. And we are near the day of the Lord. The Bible here requires us parents to turn our hearts to the children. 
and to listen to them and to teach them God's way. Parents, as your children grow, don't try to tell them what to do in every case. Help them make informed, godly choices. If you try to tell them what to do all the time, it frustrates them. It frustrates the purpose of God, which is to teach us godly character. And character requires choice. Now, I know that some parents, some people like a military model approach. Do as I say, when I say to do it, without asking any questions. Drill sergeants like that a lot. Little children might need that, but this should not be for children above ages 6, 7, 8. As they grow, help them to understand. We must all learn servant leadership. As fathers, Mr. Meredith has been talking about servant leadership. And I just want to speak to my brother ministers. We all need to be learning and helping people make informed choices as well. We must be teaching God's way. Why did the Apostle Peter say to us elders, don't be lords over God's flock? Because there could be a tendency to do that. We should be servant leaders. What should ministers be doing? Well, ministers, let me just turn over here. We should be doing what Jesus Christ tells us to do. We should be strengthening the weak. We should be healing those who are sick. We should be binding up the brokenhearted. We should be bringing back that which was driven away. We should be seeking that which is lost. We need to be serving, exhorting, encouraging as servant leaders. Being good examples to God's people. 2 Timothy 2 and verse 24. 2 Timothy 2 and verse 24. It says, And the servant of the Lord, again, servant leadership, a servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach, patient, in humility correcting those who are in opposition, if God perhaps will grant them repentance, so that they may know the truth, that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil having been taken captive by him to do his will. We have a great responsibility, my brothers, to set the right example, to be gentle, to be kind, to be good shepherds, servant leaders, to bind up the brokenhearted, to seek that which is lost. Back in Malachi 4, it says, the hearts of the fathers to the children and the children to the fathers. What if your parents have not been the best parents? you are still required by God to turn your hearts toward your parents, to respect them, to honor them, to love them. What we see in Malachi 4 here is actually a classic definition of reconciliation. You know, the world has difficulties living in peace. Do we in the Church of God know what reconciliation means? Do we do it in our families? I know that it only takes one party to cause a problem. It takes both parties to reconcile. And if you're in a marriage and, and one party wants to live in peace and the other doesn't, can't work. But God uses the word reconciliation to describe what he did with us. While we were yet sinners, God turned toward us 
You think, well, wait a minute. God's perfect. He didn't do anything wrong. No, no, he didn't. But he used that word reconcile, which you can look it up in Strong's, means mutual change. While we were yet sinners, he turned toward us. We offended God, we broke his law, but he gave his son to pay the penalty for our sins, and we should turn toward our Father. As it says here in Malachi, turn toward our Father, our spiritual Father in heaven. Young people, if you make mistakes, and God forbid, but you will, don't think that only you suffer. Your parents pay as well. God, our parent, paid the penalty for our sins. He turns toward us. In marriage, in 1 Corinthians 7, that word is used again. It says, if, if a husband and wife were estranged, they should stay apart unless they reconcile, unless they turn toward each other. I think it's pretty rare. It might be possible, but in my limited experience with human relations, have I seen someone who's always entirely 100% right and someone entirely 100% wrong? We need to consider these things. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 18. We are all part of a ministry of reconciliation. We need to learn how to reconcile so we can live in peace. The world is trying to do that. In 2 Corinthians 5, and verse 18. It says, Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself. He's turned toward us, and we should turn toward him. He has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we all, you young people, all of us, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God was pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be you reconciled to God. Reconciliation is very important to God. We have a ministry of reconciliation. But brethren, if we can't reconcile our marriages or make a good faith effort to do so, if we cannot reconcile among ourselves in the church of God, what credibility will we have with the world? Turn. Turn towards one another. Be like God. Parents who gives opportunities to children to learn, to make mistakes, and he still loves and forgives. Parents, the commandment says, and young people, the commandment says, to honor your father and your mother. Parents, be honorable. Families, learn how to reconcile. Learn what reconciliation means. We must learn to do this, or God will strike the earth with utter destruction, as it says in Malachi 4. Reconciliation is part of the way to peace, to shalom. We must learn it now, so we can teach it in the world tomorrow. Proverbs 17, verse 14. Proverbs 17, verse 14. The way to peace depends many ways upon us. Proverbs 17 and verse 14 says, The beginning of strife is like releasing water. Nice King James euphemism. Therefore, stop contention before a quarrel starts. 
One of the principles of peace is don't even start down the wrong path that leads to an argument, to a quarrel, to fornication, to a wrong marriage or crime or drugs. Don't even start. Because once you start, once you take that first step, the second step is a little easier. The third, a little easier, a little easier. Yet I know we have peer pressure. My children talk to me about peer pressure. Schools. Universities. But we, and you young people, you have a personal responsibility to be strong. If your group at school is pushing you the wrong way, you need to choose a new group of friends. There are groups called Alcohol, Alcoholics Anonymous, other support groups for people of different difficulties. Human beings, we need support groups to help us overcome because we all have weaknesses. It shows the importance of having good friends, iron sharpening iron, us helping each other. Lamentations 3, verse 33. Lamentations 3, verse 33. It says in Lamentations 3, verse 33, God does not willingly afflict nor grieve the children of men. No, it's not his desire, it's not his wish that we be afflicted to crush under one's feet all the prisoners of the earth, to turn aside the justice due a man before the face of the Most High or subvert a man in his cause. The Lord does not approve of these things. God does not want to cause or propose for us to have trouble. But he does allow us to reap the fruits of our own behavior. So we must all learn to do justly, fairly, equitably, and follow godly principles. Back in Ezekiel 18, verse 30, Ezekiel 18 and verse 30, God says, Therefore I will judge you, O house of Israel, everyone according to his ways. Reiterating once again, personal responsibility. I will judge each one of you according to his ways, says the Lord God. Repent and turn from all your transgressions so that iniquity will not be your ruin. Cast away from you all the transgressions which you have committed and get yourselves a new heart and a new spirit, you young people. A new heart, a new spirit. For why would you die, O house of Israel? I have no pleasure in the death of one who dies, says the Lord God. Therefore, turn and live. Do you hear God imploring and pleading with Israel, with each one of us? Why will you die? Don't go the way of sin. Learn to do justly. Why will you die? Turn and live. The second part of what God requires of us from Micah 6.8, we talked about do justly, is to love mercy. Love mercy. It's a fundamental part of God's character. It must be a fundamental part of ours. It is one of the weightier matters of the law that Jesus described in Matthew 23.23. Let's go to Proverbs 20, verse 28. Proverbs 20, verse 28. It says, Mercy and truth preserve the king, and by loving kindness he upholds his throne. If you are powerful, young people, again, age 13 to 30, if you become powerful, be merciful. When you're a parent, will you be merciful? When you're a boss, how will you treat other people? Fear does not uphold the throne of the king. Saddam Hussein tried to control his country through fear. 
It didn't last eventually. I remember even uh, Star Wars. Some of you saw Star Wars. I liked Star Wars. Uh, remember what Princess Leia told Moff Tarkin? You know, she said, you know, he was going to use fear to control the star systems. Okay? She said, the more you tighten your grip, the more star systems will slip through your fingers. That's what happens when you try to control through fear. Try to do that with water. Pour water in your hand, both hands, and then try to tighten your grip because water is precious. It all goes away. No, you hold water in your hand by supporting it, by giving it some freedom of movement. You treat it gently, and you can carry it, just like a shepherd carries it. A lamb gently in his hands. Mercy. Kindness. Perfect love casts out fear. Proverbs 19, verse 17. Again, I'm speaking to you young people as you grow. He who has pity on the poor lends to the Lord. He will pay back what he has given. I had a situation in my family some years ago. Um, one of the uh, women in the family had a problem with her teeth was in pain. And um, her husband came to me and said he needed some money. He didn't have money to pay for the teeth to be corrected. So um, I didn't have the money either, but I went out and borrowed it, gave it to him. And um, she got her teeth fixed and everything was fine, so I was expecting to get the money back. And I was expecting to get the money back. And I was expecting to get the money back. And you know what? This relative avoided me. <laughs> and I thought, okay, God says if you lend to the poor, if you have pity on the poor, he'll pay back. Well, some years later, I was going between jobs. I was going from the job of um, director of children's issues over to uh, what we affectionately call the Bureau of Drugs and Thugs, uh, <laughs> International Law Enforcement, Narcotics and Law Enforcement. And they have a different budget in the State Department. So they were trying to get me on their budget while the State Department was trying to, you know, do their part. And you know what? I didn't get paid. So I went in, I started pounding the table, you know, I've got children to feed. You know, of course, it would have been good for them to miss a few meals, but nevertheless, um, you know, I, I, you got to pay me. Gotta, oh, yeah, yeah, okay, okay. So everyone's scurrying around trying to get this all fixed. And you know what? They paid me twice. So I, you know, said, well, no, I know you. I've got to give this money back. I wrote memos. But, you know, the government can't admit that kind of mistake. <laughs> and so uh, did I get paid back? Yes, I did. Thank you, taxpayers. <laughs> but actually, I thank God. Because what does this proverb say? It says, he who has pity on the poor lends to the Lord, and he will repay back what he's given. Remember that. Proverbs 23, or excuse me, Psalm 23. Psalm 23. We need to be merciful to the poor. Have that kind of attitude, that kind of approach. Psalm 23. I would encourage all of us to memorize this. I memorized this as a young man times of difficulties, I would repeat this even on my bed at night. It encouraged me. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not walk. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me besides the still waters. 
He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness and justice for His name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of debt, I will fear no creditor. Oh, no, I missed that thing. No, no, we've got to be very careful, young people, about credit cards. I'm serious about that. They just changed the law. They're not very merciful to people who don't pay their credit cards. So be very careful about that. But no, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. It reminds me of a time I was in Thailand. I, my, my father worked for TWA all his life, so I was able to travel around the world for free. And um, so I didn't have anybody else to travel with, so I traveled around the world. And I was there in Thailand, in Bangkok, a little bit at, well, I think the Vietnam War was still going on. And I wanted to walk around and see the place. So I thought, well, I'm going to just walk down here. I want to see the port. I'd never seen a, a busy port like that. So I was walking down toward the port, and I walked through this area, and then I crossed this big Rama the Fifth Road. And, and then I noticed that, well, you know, there were bars on the shops, and the area got to be looking a little bit seedier. And then I noticed behind me there was two guys following me. And I was going, oh, man. And so I thought, well... If I just keep walking down to the port, you know, there'd be a police station, there'd be somebody, someone can help me there in case I have trouble. So I kept walking, and as I got closer, I thought, oh no, because instead of a police station or a port or people, I saw these, these big, you know, nine-foot chain-link fence with barbed wire on top. What to do, what to do? So I go up to the fence, I'm thinking, how many of God's people are in this country? Maybe just me. <laughs> What am I going to do? I said, I'm going to have to turn around and walk out of here. And I was, you know, praying for help. So, after I prayed, I took a big breath. I turned around. I saw the two guys, maybe about 10 feet away, looking at me. I looked at them. I took one step. Then all of a sudden, out of this side, uh, there was bushes over here. This, this crazy guy comes out and he starts jabbering. He's looking at me. He's looking at these two guys. He's jabbering at them. Of course, we're looking at each other and looking at this guy like, what's this? And then he runs off that way. And these two guys, they look at each other, and they turn and followed him. <laughs> so I walked out of there, and I was happy. But you know, I shouldn't have gone there by myself. I was foolish to do that. It's only by the grace of God I stand before you right now. Proverbs, or I think it's Ecclesiastes, says that two is better than one. A threefold knot is not quickly broken. You young people, when you travel, travel with somebody. Don't be like me. I made a mistake there. But God did protect me. He did deliver me. It says here, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me. God is merciful and we should be merciful to others all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. The third is that we should walk humbly. Third point in Malachi is walk humbly with God. Let's go to Proverbs 22 and verse 4. Proverbs 22 and verse 4. Proverbs 22 and verse 4 says, A prudent man foresees the evil and hides himself, but the simple pass on and are punished. Well, that's verse 3. Verse 4, here we go. By humility and the fear of the Lord are riches and honor and life. We're to walk humbly. 
We're to walk humbly. So by humility and fear of the Lord are riches, honor, and life. Well, we need to learn from reliable teachers. And we need to be humble to learn, young people. The world will tempt you to break the law for quick gain. We must all be clothed with humility. I, I like to go to 1 Peter 5 right now. 1 Peter 5 and verse 5. 1 Peter 5 and verse 5. It says, Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you, all of us, be submissive one to another and be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he can devour. You know, I, I, I've been to Africa. I've seen how lions hunt. I know, Dr. Winnell, if you've had that opportunity as well, but you know, just right outside of Nairobi, there's Nairobi National Park. So um, Owen Willis and I and my wife one time, we decided we're going to go out there and watch, watch the animals. So we're going around this Land Rover, and we come up, and we see three lions. Oh, boy, this is great. Those lions, they look at us, and, of course, they only smell the car. They didn't smell human beings, so they ignored us. And they could tell they were hungry, hungry lions. So they were trotting along, and they wanted something to eat. Well, so they wanted to go down to the cafeteria. So they, they sort of come over the rise, and what's, what's for lunch today? Ah, zebra. So they see all these zebra down there. So immediately the lions sort of pop down. All you see are their little ears, and they're looking. Well, you know what? The zebras, they're smart animals. A lot of the zebras were out there grazing, but there were sentinels, about three of them. They weren't grazing. They were looking back at the lions. So the lions were looking at the sentinels, and the sentinels were looking at the lions. And, you know, as long as the zebras sort of stay together as a herd, and they have sentinels who are doing their job, everyone's safe. Everyone's happy. Because how do lions hunt? Lions, they will catch the young. Because the young stray from the herd. The young are off doing their thing. And the lions get around them, grab them, and eat them. Lions also get old. The old ones. The old ones who are sick, who can't keep up with the herd, the lions will get them too. The lions get the sick ones who can't, for some reason, keep up with the herd. What does this tell us, brethren? That we must stay with the herd. We must stay with the church, with responsible sentinels. We must encourage the young to stay, to not wander. We must comfort and support the old and the weak and their infirmities and keep them with us. I often think, when Israel went out of Egypt, how many Israelite grandmothers were left behind? I don't think any. We must walk humbly with God, because God resists the proud, but the devil is out there trying to get us. God will exalt all of us, young and old, in due time. You young people, your generation, may have to complete this phase of the work before Christ's return. Back in temple times, men at age 25 started their training. They were trained before they took up their duties at age 30. When they worked from age 30 to age 50, it was physical labor. After age 50, they didn't have the physical labor of the sacrifices. But I think 
all of us, and I speak to my brother ministers again, we need to pay attention to the younger generation, to give them opportunities for service and to train and leadership, because they will be the ones to carry on. Now let's very quickly go to some other tips for success and happiness. Ooh, don't want to go over time. First, we should all young people review the seven laws of success. They really helped me. But I will just give several suggestions here. One, get your education. Proverbs 15, Proverbs 15, verse 14. Proverbs 15, 14. It says, The heart of him who has understanding seeks knowledge, but the mouth of fools feeds on foolishness. Get your university degree, if it's at all possible. As much as possible, parents, help your children with their tuition. You may want the kids to pay their own living expenses. That's what we decided to do. I figured they have to invest as well. They might have to borrow for that. They might have to work for that. That's good for them. I know my son, he complained to me. He said, he went to William and Mary. He said, Dad, all these other kids, you know, their parents had you know, mutual funds for them. From the time they were born. How come he didn't do that for us? Said, Son, we were poor. <laughs> we saved what we could. But he was complaining and complaining. But, you know, now I, um, maybe he just told my wife. But he said, well, it was good for him. They have to get out there and work and earn money. And he borrowed money. And, you know, he makes more money than I do now. You know, he's paid off his college loans and all that kind of stuff. And God bless him. That's great, you know. Really, getting an education is important. Plan for it. Do it. One strategy for success. Attach yourself, young people, to a capable person and learn from them. Very quickly, I'm going to go to Lamentations 3.27. Why am I going to Lamentations? Well, one of my daughters said that no one ever reads from Lamentations. So I thought I would do that, show her that a deed exists. Lamentations 3.27, it says, It is good for a man to bear the yoke in his youth. But in Hosea 4 and verse 6, My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because you've rejected knowledge, I will also reject you from being priests for me, or being teachers for me. Because you've forgotten the law of your God, I will forget your children. Well, God says we're destroyed for lack of knowledge. Now, you young people, if you don't get your education, what kind of job are you going to have? What kind of life are you going to have? Are you going to have a prosperous life? I don't think so. So get your education. If it's all possible, go to university. Get that degree. It opens the door for you. But of course, he's talking about spiritual knowledge. So you should also seek spiritual knowledge while you're young. Seek God's knowledge, which will preserve and protect and deliver you from so many evils, so many problems and difficulties. And to, your, to the parents... You know, it says, because you have forgotten the law of your God, I will forget your children. But parents, I think, I think the obverse is true as well. If we remember God's laws and we practice them faithfully, even if our children stray from God, God will remember them and our children will know the way home. Remember God's law and your children will be able to come home. And you young people, if you stray from God, and I urge you, please don't, but if you do, remember the story of the prodigal son. God will receive you 
if you repent in true humility. But the cost of going the way of the world is high. It's high in terms of lost self-respect, in terms of lost opportunities. It's high in terms of your effect, effect on your health, diseases, problems, accidents. In terms of its effect on your wealth, you do drugs, you're penniless. Your marriage is destroyed. The cost of going the way of the world is high. Sorrow will follow you. And the baggage of sin, the baggage of the effect of sin sometimes never goes away. Something your parents have already learned. Galatians 6 and verse 7. Galatians 6 and verse 7. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that will he also reap. For he who sows to the flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. But he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. And let us not grow weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those of the household of faith. God is not mocked. What you sow, you reap. Second point. Be diligent in your work. Be diligent in your work. Proverbs 22, verse 29. I, when I first started this sermon, I had like 50 verses, and I thought that was a bit much. So I cut it down to about 30, and I'm already cutting more out. And there's a lot more we could talk about. But Proverbs 22, 29 says, Do you see a man who excels in his work? He will stand before kings. He will not stand before unknown men. It doesn't matter what you do, as long as it's honorable and right and just. But if you do it well, God promises you will be noticed and you will stand before kings. Ladies, I would just urge you to look at the uh, bookworm guys, the guys who study diligently in school. Um, I think you'll have a, a better life for those kind of guys than the uh, strong, good-looking jocks. I mean, you know, jocks need wives too. But, um, you know, I say that speaking from personal experience. Someone who's a bookworm will actually appreciate your beauty a lot more than, you know, the jock who has, you know, the cheerleader and so forth. You know, I have a very beautiful wife, and I'm very happy. I appreciate her very much. So um, I just urge you young ladies, you know, look to the, the bookworms, those guys, because I think they will <clears throat> give you a, a good life. Number three, plan things out. Young people, I urge you to count the cost for baptism. That's part of our purpose for being here is to learn God's way. Come to know God, to know God's way, choose God's way, do God's way. Consider the cost and then make that commitment. Plan things out. Plan to live a full 70 years. Invest. Build. We don't know how long we have before Christ returns, before all the things that are prophesied happen. You know, for Europe to fulfill prophecy, they're going to have to learn how to project power. And to do that, they need... At least three things. They need to have a separate command and control structure from NATO. They need to have airplanes to transport troops. And they need to have a satellite navigation system for precision-guided munitions. Now, they just started a couple years ago to get a small command and control unit apart from NATO. But there's still a liaison officer from NATO there. So that's going to have to grow. And that's, that's something we can watch. They need to build planes you know, Europe can only transport in two weeks 7% of its military, roughly the same size as U.S. military, 
we can transport 70% of our troops in two weeks overseas. Why? Well, the Europeans depend upon the military airlift command for that. So the Europeans need to build planes for that, and a satellite navigation system, which I'm following for the U.S. government. Um, the Europeans need to build. It's called Galileo. And at this point, uh, they are planning the constellation up between 2010 and 2012. Can they do it? We took 10 years to get our constellation up and, and test it and so forth. Can they do it quicker than that? Maybe. But, you know, we have to plan our lives. And I think, didn't Mr. Armstrong say that we had to plan our lives to live a full 70 years? Don't have a short-term point of view. Build your house. Build your marriage. Invest in your future. Be confident you can follow your dream. In this country, in America, you can do it. And I know in other countries, it may be a little bit more difficult. But with God's help, you can follow your dream. Nothing good is too hard for our God. Personal morality. Wind up here very quickly. Personal morality, 1 Corinthians 6, verse 17. This is a big problem, a big issue with young people. 1 Corinthians 6, and verse 17. Flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does outside the body, every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, which is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For you were bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Sex before marriage, all types, is sin. And it doesn't matter if the President of the United States doesn't understand that or not. Sex before marriage will bring sorrow. Sex outside of marriage brings sorrow. We have a personal responsibility before God to be faithful, to be pure, and be holy. I put the responsibility primarily upon young men. You need to be good leaders in that respect. Young people, choose a good mate. The time to get married is usually in your early to mid-twenties. Why is that? Because you're still flexible and you can adjust easier to another person. doesn't mean that if you're older and you haven't been married that you can't find a good wife or a good husband. But that is usually the right time to be looking a time of needing to share your life with someone. But you've got to get your education first. So have the right priorities first. Your marriage should be peaceful, young people. Seek a peaceful relationship. One of my earliest memories is my parents arguing down at the end of the hall. It's not a good memory for a young man. I was just a little toddler. Marriages is not to be a fight. It's to be peaceful. And so you should try to seek someone who's of your same nation, your same ethnic group, your same religion, your same education, your same social background. Why? Why should you seek someone who has all the similarities? Because more common assumptions leads to less conflict. If you have common assumptions, you've been in the same uh, school system, you're sort of the same socioeconomic background, you're the same nation, well, you sort of think similarly. At least you have a greater possibility of that. So you have less conflict. Marriage is to be peaceful. You read in the book of Ruth, marriage is equated with peace, not conflict. Marriage is to be peaceful, a productive partnership, a source of joy and comfort to both parties. Well, now, can a Canadian marry an Australian? Is that possible? 
I mean, they have the same, the same language, pretty much the same culture, but there's issues because far away, you know, grandparents on either side of the Pacific, long distance telephone calls, there's issues. How about a Canadian marrying a Frenchman? <clears throat> well, that could lead to problems too. There's a different language involved now. Actually, I, I know a couple, uh, an American lady married to a, a Frenchman, um, the Boyers, if you see this, hello. Uh, <laughs> lovely couple, four beautiful sons. But you know, when they first met at a feast, they had no common language, except maybe the language of love. <laughs> but they have a beautiful relationship. They're lovely people. So it's possible, but there's just more issues to work out. What about a Canadian married to a Pakistani? Ooh. Well, you know, different culture, maybe different religion, different language. You see how it goes. The more differences you have, the more problems and issues you've got to solve. That's why if you want a peaceful relationship, try to find someone of your same nation, ethnic group, religion, education, social background. I'll just uh, go one more here. Learn the way of gift giving. God is the greatest giver of all. We need to be more like him. Acts 20, verse 35, says that the Lord said it's more blessed to give than to receive. You young people, learn to give. When you go visit somebody at their house, get in the habit of bringing a house gift. Bring something. Offer something. When you come back from a trip, bring, bring something for the wife, the family, the children. Give to those who are less fortunate. Be careful about giving to those who are powerful because that might be misconstrued. And sometimes be careful what you give. If you, uh, many times I like to bring a bottle of wine when I go visit somebody. That's usually well appreciated. But uh, if you go in Switzerland and you bring a bottle of wine over, it says, I've got a bone to pick with you. <laughs> so you've so you got to know a little bit about the society and be, be sensitive to that. <clears throat> but learning the way of give is truly God's way. Well, let's try to sum it up. I've tried to speak to young people, toddlers, teenagers, and of course to all of us. The kingdom of God, the key message that Jesus Christ preached. The kingdom of God is the family of God, administering the government of God over the creation of God. Human life, the purpose of human life is to come to know that creator God. To learn and to build godly character, which is to know the right, choose the right, and do the right. To build that character, we need God's Spirit in us. We need Jesus Christ and God the Father living their life in us through the Spirit. And you young people, when you're of age, probably at least around age 20, begin to think seriously about making that commitment to God in baptism. You need that help. We all need that help from God to live His way. God requires that all of us learn to do justly, to love mercy, and walk humbly with Him. You younger people, you may well be the main age group to finish this phase of the work. As you grow, if you're 20, 25, 30, depending on how much time we have left, you'll be reaching into the, the peak of your physical, mental, financial strength. God predicted that we would see a group of young people who would do right and it would comfort our hearts. 
May each of you young people be part of that group. In the meantime, get your education. Be diligent in study and work. Plan out your life for accomplishment. Commit to personal morality. Learn good people skills. And learn to live the gift-giving way of life. May we all learn and practice God's way of love and give so that we all might learn and live happily ever after.